Hey guys, I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the podcast, you can show your support via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or follow the link under the contribute tab at wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up, I promise. For just a buck or two a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. Not only that, but you get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. Thanks to Bobby, Jackie, and Eden for their recent contributions. With that, let's get on to today's show, the first episode in a brand new mini-series on grammar. Yes, grammar. Grammar is something that we haven't talked a lot about on this podcast, because usually this show focuses on the process of semantic change. Semantic change is what occurs when the meaning of a word changes over time. However, the tagline of this show is not a podcast that looks at semantic change, but a podcast that looks at how words change over time. This broader scope of linguistic change over time can include things like spelling, pronunciation, syntax, and of course, grammar. Now, this isn't going to be a mini-series on grammar per se. What it's going to be is a series that shows how English grammar evolved over time by looking at the particular evolutions of grammatical words in modern English. Of course, using this format, I won't be able to tell you the full story of how English grammar evolved. You probably need to go to school and get a PhD for that. But you will walk away from this mini-series with a better idea of why we speak modern English the way we do. For example, why is to be such an irregular verb? Why are the plural forms of some animals, like deer, sheep, and fish, the same as their singular form? And why do we say sung instead of singed and broke instead of braked? As any speaker of English knows, English grammar is full of peculiarities and exceptions. Although these exceptions may seem random and capricious at first glance, I assure you that they are not. These peculiarities and exceptions are a byproduct of historical circumstances interacting with linguistic principles. Before we dive into any particular words, there are two things that I want to do. First, I want to clarify exactly what grammar is, and then I want to give you a brief overview of significant events in the history of English grammar. This second point is a particularly important prerequisite to the rest of this miniseries to come, because in later episodes, I may reference things such as the West Germanic migration to Britain, or the Norse invasions and I don't want to have to get bogged down by exposition. So, let's start things off with a definition of grammar. Grammar is the set of rules that governs how words are arranged in a language in order to convey meaning. It is also the formal study of these rules. The etymology of grammar itself comes from this second definition, as it's a shortening of the Greek phrase grammatike tekne, which translates as the art of letters or the art of the alphabet. However, we should keep in mind that grammar, that is the inherent set of rules defined by the first definition, was around long before the invention of the alphabet 
and it was around long before anyone deliberately analyzed it in the first place. According to the theory of universal grammar, the capacity for grammar is naturally hardwired into human beings without having to be taught it. Grammar, therefore, is as old as human language as we know it. It's something created by nature, not culture. Sure, culture uses grammar to tell stories and to create literature that have aesthetic qualities, but the grammar itself is not an aesthetic convention. For this reason, William Jones, the father of modern historical linguistics, was a bit out of touch when he claimed that Sanskrit had, quote, the most perfect and refined grammar, end quote, of any language in the world. Sanskrit grammar is no better than English grammar, which is no better than Latin grammar, which is no better than Lithuanian grammar, etc., etc. The misconception that one language's grammar can be superior to another language's grammar is something that we'll discuss in greater detail later on in this episode. Now, I can't tell you why we're designed this way as humans, but what I can tell you is why grammar is necessary in order for complex language to work. Note that I said complex language and not just language. While words in a grammarless language are capable of conveying meaning, they convey a one-dimensional worldview, a worldview unaligned with how we as human beings actually experience the world. Let me explain. For example, the way we experience time as a human being has three main aspects, the present, past, and the future, and this universal experience is reflected in our grammar. We can grammatically modify a verb like jump to reflect the present, I jump, the past, I jumped, and the future, I will jump. We also have more complex tenses, such as the present progressive, I am jumping, which indicates an action happening right now, and the past perfect, I had jumped, which indicates a past action that is permanently completed. Without even realizing it, we slip in and out of different tenses all the time in order to accurately convey meaning, and all of this is made possible by none other than grammar. When we modify a base word in order to change its grammatical case, this is called an inflection. Another hallmark of grammar is the sentence, which linguists define as a distinct unit of words whose meaning is determined by a grammatical relationship. When I say, I jumped over you, the particular order of those words, also known as syntax, determines the meaning of what I'm saying. If instead of, I jumped over you, I said, you jumped over I, not only would I need to be inflected as me in order to mark the first person as an object pronoun, but you would become the subject of the sentence, thus changing the entire meaning. Hopefully these two examples demonstrate how words without grammar have a real limitation. If we used words without grammar, we would be no different from other animals, because indeed, many animals use words or sounds to convey basic meanings, but because they don't have grammar, they can't form sentences or create layers of meaning, and therefore they can't express complex ideas like we can. For the linguists among you, none of what I'm saying is revolutionary. But for the non-linguist lay people interested in how language works and why it works, I hope these were some interesting points to consider. So, with those out of the way, 
Let's take a brief tour through the history of English grammar, starting with the Old English spoken by the original Anglo-Saxon settlers on the British Isle in the 5th century CE. What were the characteristics of Old English? Well, first and foremost, Old English was a Germanic language, specifically a West Germanic language. Modern English is still a Germanic language, but most of its Germanic features have been lost over time. When I say features, I'm really referring to something called morphology, which is the linguistic term that refers to word shapes, or patterns of conjugation within a language. Old English had masculine, feminine, and neuter nouns, each of which had its own grammatical case endings used to indicate parts of speech. These case endings included the nominative, accusative, dative, and genitive, with seven declensions. In contrast, modern English nouns don't have grammatical gender at all. Also, with the exception of pronouns, we generally don't inflect or change the form of nouns based on their part of speech. So, let's take an arbitrary noun like stone. A stone is a stone whether it's the subject or, say, the indirect object of a sentence. But in Old English, a stone in the subject position, or the nominative case, was inflected as stan, while in the indirect object position, or the dative case, it was inflected as stane. Old English adjectives had five cases and three genders. An Old English adjective had to agree with the case and gender of the noun it described. In contrast, modern English adjectives have no case and no gender. So, let's say we have a gray stone. Well, if we had gray stones, we don't make gray plural. It stays the same. We also don't inflect adjectives to agree with the case of the nouns they're describing. So, in the sentences, a gray stone falls into water, and I give you a gray stone, the word gray remains the same, even though in sentence one, it's describing a subject, and in sentence two, it's describing a direct object. As for verbs, Old English verbs fell into two categories, weak and strong. Weak verbs indicated tense by adding different endings to the base verb. This is similar to how we use ed in modern English to mark past tense verbs and s or es to mark singular third-person present tense verbs. Nowadays, most English textbooks refer to weak verbs as regular verbs. Strong verbs, on the other hand, indicated tense by modifying a vowel sound in the base verb. Around 200 modern English verbs still have this characteristic, such as sing and swim. We say sing, sang, sung, and swim, swam, swum, not sing, singed, singed, and swim, swimmed, swimmed. Most modern English textbooks classify these nouns as irregular. Indeed, they are irregular based on the regular formula, but all modern English irregular verbs that modify vowel sounds to show tense are actually a relic of this regular convention of Old English grammar. As for syntax, or word order, Old English was flexible. Since it had a grammatical case system that marked each word's part of speech, its word order was much more fluid than that of modern English. We'll talk about the evolution of this flexible syntax into the more rigid syntax found in modern English in just a bit. 
So there's a basic crash course in Old English grammar from the 5th through 9th centuries CE. Over the course of that time period, the structure of English remained fairly static. Then enter the Vikings. The first Viking invasion of Britain occurred in 793 at Lindisfarne, and in the decades to follow, Vikings launched attacks throughout Britain. But they did more than loot and plunder. They took over large areas of land, settled down, and began interbreeding with the Anglo-Saxons already on the island. With these new Scandinavian inhabitants came a new Scandinavian language. The Vikings that invaded and settled in Britain spoke Old Norse, a northern Germanic language. If you recall, Old English was also a Germanic language, but a West Germanic language. Though Old Norse and Old English were indeed distinct languages, their shared Germanic lineage meant that they were similar enough to be mutually intelligible. As a result, these two languages began influencing each other, and in a sense, they merged as one. In the parts of England inhabited by Vikings, Old English became Norsified, and the effects of this Norsification still can be felt in modern English today. Around 400 or so everyday words such as husband, ugly, thing, law, window, take, and want all come from Old Norse. However, the influence of Old Norse was greater than the introduction of a few hundred loanwords. Old Norse stirred up a few of the grammatical foundations of Old English. Some of these grammatical changes include the conjugation of the verb to be, the S and ES endings for the third-person singular present tense verbs, third-person plural pronouns, and probably the syntactical construction of interrogative sentences, aka questions. These are pretty huge linguistic changes, far huger than borrowing a couple hundred loan words. I plan to tackle at least some of these topics in greater detail later on in the miniseries. The next major event in the history of English is the Norman-French conquest in the year 1066. The Normans, which originally derives from the phrase Norsemen, were the descendants of Viking settlers in the Normandy region of France. However, at this point in history, they were well-established French speakers and Norse in name alone. Note that this is the exact opposite linguistic outcome of what occurred with the Viking settlers in England. Anyway, the historical backdrop for the Norman Conquest is a complicated mess of royal bloodlines and politics, but basically, there was a dispute over the succession of the British throne, and William, Duke of Normandy, fought his way to the throne through a war. This resulted in a French-speaking ruling class in England for about 300 years. The linguistic situation in England became socially stratified. While the upper crust of society was speaking French, the vast majority of the country, peasants and serfs, still spoke English. The most commonly discussed linguistic consequence of the Norman invasion is the massive influx of French vocabulary into English. During these 300 years, something like 10,000 French words entered common English usage, and that's no small feat. Today, approximately 30% of the English lexicon is derived directly from French. To give some perspective on this, approximately 26% of the English lexicon actually derives from native English. In other words, we have more French words in our vocabulary than native English ones. 
However, more importantly to today's story, English grammar also changed during this period of French occupation. The most significant change during this period was the simplification of case inflections. You'll recall that Old English was a highly inflected language, as we've already discussed, which meant that each part of speech had its own special ending. Well, that feature of English completely eroded during this period. Instead of case endings, English, like Norman French, began relying on word order or syntax in order to convey grammar. It began using prepositions, not case endings, to indicate parts of speech like the direct object and indirect object. Linguists believe that the main force behind the erosion of case endings was due to phonological change. The sound of French was influencing the sound of English, and these sound changes made it difficult for the Old English case endings to easily roll off the tongue. As I've discussed in previous episodes of Words for Granted, pronunciation tends toward the path of least resistance. So, by the 14th century, the Old English case system had basically disappeared. Although word order was flexible in Old English, it tended toward an SOV, or subject-object-verb, construction. This word order was typical of ancient Germanic languages. We can see a remnant of this in the modern English word manslaughter, strangely enough. Manslaughter derives from the Old English compound monslat, which is literally the words for man plus strike. Here, the object comes before the verb. If we were to make a sentence out of this, in modern English we would say, I strike a man. But the survival of the compound word manslaughter suggests the I a man strike construction. We also see this grammatical relic in modern English compounds including the word bearing, such as childbearing or fruit-bearing. As a sentence unto itself, you wouldn't say the tree is fruit-bearing, but rather the tree is bearing fruit. After the Norman Conquest, English began tending toward its modern SVO, or subject-verb-object, construction. Consider this statistic. During the 1200s, 53% of the written record shows direct objects coming before the verb. By the 1400s, that number is down to 14%, and by the 1500s, at which point we enter the early modern English period, it's down to just 2%. Today, barring instances of poetic license, that number is down to 0%. French also gave English a vast number of common prefixes, such as pre, ex, con, and d, and suffixes, such as shun, itty, ants, and age. Of the same token, many Old English prefixes and suffixes fell out of usage. English spelling and pronunciation also received a heavy facelift during this period, and although those changes aren't grammatical, I thought I would mention them anyway. In short, the French influence on English created, literally, an entirely new language. English by the year 1350 could not be understood by an English speaker in the year 750, and for this reason, English in the wake of the Norman Conquest is known as Middle English. Although English writing became scarce after the Norman Conquest, the language persisted, and by the 1400s, it experienced a full resurgence. At this point, even the nobility had stopped speaking French. By the 1500s, Westminster English, 
that is, the dialect of English spoken in the Westminster region, became the nation's language of prestige. Englishness and the English language had become a source of nationalist pride, and for the first time ever, English was beginning to be considered an important language. This also marked the beginning of modern English as we know it. By the 1600s, noteworthy works of science, literature, law, and religion were all being written in English. These new trends inspired people to formally study English for the first time in history, and as a result, English grammar was born. When I say English grammar was born, I'm talking about the study of linguistic rules, not the birth of those rules themselves. You see, before this point, the study of grammar was something that strictly applied to Latin. Prior to the 1600s, the word might even have been defined as the study of Latin, as opposed to the study of how any language's rules work. During the medieval period, Latin was both the language of the church and the European lingua franca. This made it even more prestigious than French on the British Isle, and for that matter, throughout the continent. So, it was taken for granted by Europe that Latin was the only language worth studying. I'd like to digress for just a moment regarding this medieval sense of the word grammar. In addition to meaning the study of Latin, it also could mean things like magical incantation, magic spell, gibberish, or the occult. At first, this seems totally crazy because there's nothing magical about dissecting subjects, objects, and verbs and putting your commas in the right place. But maybe that's just because nowadays, we all know how grammar works, at least to some degree. During the medieval period, most of England was illiterate. Learning how to read and write was something reserved for wealthy members of society, so literacy had an air of mystique to it. To people who couldn't read, a manuscript was just a hunk of paper with arbitrary shapes scrawled on it, yet somehow those shapes had meaning. But only to some people. Not only that, but most of these manuscripts were written in Latin, which was a language that they couldn't even understand on speaking terms. So I can see, for your average person, how there can be something occulty about that. Anyway, this outsider's perspective on grammar gives us the word grimoire, a somewhat obscure word meaning a manual to summon demons, and, strangely enough, the word glamour, which originally meant magic or enchantment. Anyway, Back on track. When the study of English grammar was first undertaken, it was naturally modeled on Latin grammar, because, as already stated, that's literally what grammar was. The first ever book on English grammar, called Pamphlet for Grammar, was written by William Bullockar in 1586, and its form and presentation emulated William Lilly's Rudiamenta Grammaticis, a popular book on Latin grammar published a few decades earlier. Although Pamphlet for Grammar was written in English, the majority of English grammar books published through the 17th century were actually written in Latin. Even with the prestige of Latin as the language of learning, I find this a little bizarre. Imagine learning about the grammar of your native tongue in a book written in a foreign language, and a dead and unrelated language at that. The trend of trying to fit English grammar into a Latin mold produced a handful of dubious rules that still persist today among some language pedants. The most famous prescriptivist rules that date back to this time period are that you can't end a sentence with a preposition, 
you can't use double negatives, and you can't split infinitives. These are rules of Latin grammar, and indeed, they make a whole lot of sense in Latin, especially that rule about splitting infinitives. It's impossible to split an infinitive in Latin since the infinitive is a single word. But in English, where the infinitive comprises the word to plus a verb, splitting infinitives naturally occurs all the time without obscuring the meaning. Contrary to these rules, splitting infinitives, emphatic double negatives, and ending sentences with prepositions are features ingrained into how we speak. And it's not because we're using some degenerate form of grammar. It's simply because English isn't Latin. By the 18th century, the popularity of English grammars written in English itself had rapidly increased. Previously, formal language education had been restricted to wealthy men, but now it began to include women and children, and also middle-class tradesmen and merchants, none of whom had the first clue about Latin. It was during this period that most of the English grammar that we learn in schools today was standardized. It's received a few revisions here and there, but basically, English grammar has been the same since the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Part of the reason why it hasn't changed is due to standardization itself. This is kind of common sense, but let's take a moment to consider in greater detail why this is the case. In the centuries before the widespread availability of books prescribing quote-unquote correct grammar, people spoke however they wanted to. If a certain person in a certain region began conjugating a verb in a certain way and unconsciously passed that on to his children, and then those children passed it on to their friends and their children and so on, without any formal education to stand in the way, then boom, you have legitimate language change. It sounds almost too simple, but this is how the majority of language change in the world has occurred, whether it's semantic change, phonological change, or grammatical change. These changes happen more reluctantly and more slowly nowadays, but they indeed are still going on. So there you have it, the Words for Granted crash course in why we have grammar and the history of English grammar itself. It's a brief and dense overview, but hopefully it has sufficiently set the stage for the discussions to come. Yet again, I'd like to remind you that you can support the show on Patreon. If that's not in your budget, you can still show your support by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, or your podcast directory of choice. You can also tell a friend. How easy is that? I'm on Twitter at at Words for Granted and Facebook as Words for Granted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Okay, have a great day, guys. I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted. Thank you.